Welcome back, healthy people, to a post-Mother's Day episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. I hope you healthy mothers had a great Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to my mom as well. If you're listening, send me a care package. I love getting care packages from my mom. Here I have some boxes of dirty rice, some seasoning for meats, deodorant, boxers, and one of those mini New Testament Bibles that's like the orange or the green colored Bible. It's a lot of random stuff in those care packages, but I love getting them from my mom. Who doesn't love getting care packages? I know I do. This week, I'm continuing the discussion on gas, bloating, and belching. Now we're getting into gas and bloating 30 minutes after eating. The source of gas and bloating in this time frame is usually the small intestines and first part of the large intestines. Irritable bowel syndrome is the most common cause, but there are some other causes that I'll discuss as well. Irritable bowel syndrome, also known as IBS, is characterized by abdominal pain, usually with bloating and chaotic bowel movements. So those who have IBS, you know how chaotic your bowel movements can be. Individuals can have diarrhea, constipation, locked up, can't let bowels out, no! can't let bowels out, get out of here inner voice, or have a combination of both. So individuals with IBS can have both diarrhea and constipation. They kind of fluctuate between the two. So it can be some overlap with some individuals who have IBS. The cause of IBS is unknown, but factors that can attribute to it can include muscle contractions of the intestines, So contractions of the muscles of your actual intestines, not of your abdominal wall, like where your abs are at. I'm talking about the muscles actually in your intestines can play a role in IBS. Nerves attached to your intestines and stress all can contribute to IBS. Your body will often tell you that you're stressed out sometimes before you even realize it. So make sure you listen to your body. Celiac disease. Celiac disease can also cause gas and bloating 30 minutes after you eat as well. Individuals who have celiac disease have an immune reaction to gluten. Gluten is a protein found in wheat, barley, and rye. When these individuals eat gluten, an immune response occurs leading to gas and bloating after they eat. This leads to damage of the lining of the intestines and can cause weight loss, anemia, and osteoporosis. These occur because you're not absorbing certain nutrients because the lining of your intestines is damaged from the immune response. So those individuals who have celiac disease, when they eat gluten, it causes an immune response that essentially damages the inside lining of their intestines, leading to gas and bloating and them not being able to absorb certain nutrients. Lastly, food sensitivities can cause gas and bloating. Foods including gluten, lactose, and foods containing FODMAPs can lead to gas and bloating. I already mentioned gluten in relationship to IBS, but you can have gluten sensitivity without IBS. You just develop the symptoms of gas and bloating without the immune response. Those who are lactose intolerant definitely know about what happens when they eat ice cream or drink milk. They walk around looking like they're in their second trimester all bloated after eating a bowl of homemade vanilla ice cream or Rocky Road or whatever kind of ice cream. But I'm sure it was definitely worth the sacrifice. By the way, what's your favorite ice cream? You listening to the podcast, what's your favorite ice cream? 
If you said it, ju just know I couldn't hear you. So stop talking to yourself. <laughs> Will you talk to yourself in some of your episodes? Nobody asked you about me talking to myself. Leave me alone. Leave me out of this. But uh, anyways, lastly, FODMAPs. You probably thought earlier, what, what are FODMAPs? So FODMAPs are different types of sugars that are found in food that may cause bowel irritation. Each letter in the word FODMAP stands for a particular sugar. I'm not gonna go through each letter, but I'll provide a link in the show description for you to get the information on what each letter stands for and what sugar it correlates with. Taking away or adding some of these sugars to your diet can lead to an improvement in digestive issues. At the end of this episode, I'll tell you what tests need to be done to rule out some of these conditions that I mentioned earlier. So what tests do you need to have done to rule out having celiac disease or IBS, or if you have some kind of food sensitivity. This week, I'm interviewing Dr. Maria Dinn, a primary care physician here in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Dinn attended Georgia Tech for undergraduate school and Ross University for medical school. At the age of two, she immigrated from Vietnam with her parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins. Dr. Dinn and I both attended the same residency program and she trained a few years after me. She was always fun to work with. I was laughing and joking with Dr. Dan whenever we work together. I wanted to bring her on to continue the discussion of what's been going on in the Asian community. I had Cindy Wilson on, on a previous episode, giving her experience, and I wanted to have another person on as well. I couldn't just have Cindy representing all of the Asian community, so I wanted to have another opinion on. I tried to have them both on at the same time period, but Dr. Den told me she was busy that day learning some new K-pop dance routine, and so we kind of had to reschedule her interview. So I'm glad she was able to hop on this interview so we can have a really great discussion. She needs to really work on her priorities as well, learning these K-pop dance routines. Like, it's, it's not that important. But anyways, in this episode, she'll talk about her journey to America, what it was like transitioning over to American culture, and what it has been like recently for her being Asian in America. You'll love her and our bright personality. Shout out to her dog named Tupac. So here's the interview with Dr. Dan. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Maria. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So welcome, Maria, to On Call with Dr. Randy. Thank you for sitting down and joining with me for the latest episode. This is Maria Dan, one of my favorite babies, we can say, from residency. <laughs> I trained <laughs> under me, but it was one of my favorite people to work with, and I always keep it fun and loose. So welcome to the podcast, Maria. Thanks for having me. I'm glad I got to come and talk about this subject. I've been waiting for you to ask me to come on, so I'm glad it's about this. Yeah, yeah. You haven't been responding to my text. You've been sending me to spam and stuff and trying to tell me to get an Apple instead of Android. It's been... Yeah, it goes green. So I don't respond to green text. Yeah, very judgmental. Very judgmental. <laughs> but for the listeners, tell a little bit about your background, where you from, siblings, all of that stuff. Yeah, so it's long, uh, but I was born in Vietnam. Both my parents are Vietnamese immigrants. Moved here when I was about two years old. Came here with grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins. We came to Atlanta, Georgia, settled in the Roswell area, if you're familiar. I'm the oldest of four. 
um, went, grew up in Roswell, went to Georgia Tech for undergrad, went to med school after that, did my residency with you at AMC. I think you were a third year when I came in. Yep, yep. I was a wily veteran, had well, a couple of gray hair strains. And, yeah, you didn't have to. <laughs> And then I'm still working with Wellstar as a family medicine physician, outpatient practice, and I'm loving it. We get to see a lot of different things. It's exciting. So what made your family come here? Why Atlanta out of all cities and places? Did they have some other family members that were already here or were there other choices that you knew that they were going to go to as far as places? Yeah, I mean... Most immigrants come to a coastal city, so East Coast or West Coast, right? So there's a lot of Vietnamese people in California. There's a lot of Asians in New York. And surprisingly, my family ended up in Georgia. There are a lot of Vietnamese communities in Georgia as well. Um, So my uncles and aunts were here originally, um, and they actually sponsored the rest of us to come over here. So my uncle came in the 70s when there was a, a huge migration of Vietnamese people to the United States. And then we came in the early 90s when they sponsored us. Okay. So what is being sponsored for those who don't know? What What is that kind of process to get sponsored to come, come to another country? Yeah. So there's a lot of technicalities, obviously, behind getting your green card and actually becoming a U.S. citizen. My uncle had to wait a certain amount of years to become a U.S. citizen. I think it was 10, 20, 10, to 15 years to become a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. Once you're a citizen, you can sponsor a family member. It costs money. Basically saying, hey, this person coming from this third world country doesn't have the opportunities we have. I will help sponsor them and basically providing them guidance with food, money, shelter, and just be there, I guess, if something went wrong, Mm-hmm. I would be the person taking the blame, pretty much. And so um, I didn't. I don't know how many people you're allowed to sponsor, how it works, but he was able to bring over my grandparents and my grandparents' children, which include my my dad. And so we were all able to be sponsored in America. And and so I think you have to like make a certain amount of money to sponsor however many family members to come over here. And so we were able to do that. Right. So about how old were you when you moved over here to America? I was probably around two years old. So just starting to learn Vietnamese, not knowing any English. And so I grew up with my grandparents and my parents mostly working. So I only spoke Vietnamese until I went to school. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you do you remember being in, in Vietnam at all? I know you were like two. I know, I was two. I only remember because of pictures. So we always watch back old pictures, old videos that we would take. And so that jogs my memory. I don't know if it's a real memory or it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I watched these videos. And so now I know. But yeah, so we the good thing is we still have our VHS tapes, <laughs> pictures we can look back on. Um, but it's changed a lot since then. So there's uh, old school VHS tapes of Maria running around. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So what have your family, like mom and dad, told you about how it was for them initially when they moved over here from Vietnam? Was it like as grand as they thought it was going to be when they first moved over here? Or they had some kind of initial struggles, like everybody living in the same house? What what was it like initially? Oh, yeah, it was definitely tough. I mean, my parents came here with no money. They were considered 
you know, the people in the 70s, the Vietnamese people that came over in the 70s are considered the real boat people. So they actually left on a boat and were traveling across the ocean, basically, to the United States. My parents had to take a different path. I mean, my dad tells us stories all the time about him trying to escape during and communists catching him and my pregnant mom trying to escape. Oh. Um, and so he, she was pregnant with me when they tried to escape and they would put her, they put them in jail, you know, eventually let them go. She had me and he tried again, you know, a year later and then two years later and was finally able to. So what they had to do was basically escape Vietnam, go into another neighboring country like Thailand, Singapore, and then you know, get on an airplane and go to the United States from there. So we didn't leave directly from Vietnam. So, you know, he tells us stories all the time about him not having any money, coming here, living with my uncle, my grandparents, my cousins. I mean, there was probably a time where there was 20 something of us in one house, you know, two story house or something. And starting out with any kind of work, any kind of job. And so he did everything, you know, from janitorial work, to I know, you know, my uncle worked at the airport one, at one point. And so kind of random, all spectrums of field of work. But we settled into the beauty salon kind of industry. Um, and so you, you know, hear about a lot of Vietnamese people doing nails. And so that's what my family got into as well as um, nail salons. And so my mom started working in a nail salon with my aunt. And so that's kind of how we started settling and them getting money. And yeah. Right. So it must have been like some crazy stuff that was going on in Vietnam that made them leave from Vietnam to come over here, basically with sounds like only the clothes on their backs. Yeah. Yeah. So what was going on in Vietnam in that time period? Right. I mean, you know, obviously we hear about the Vietnam War and the communist regime and everything. And so they had no opportunity to do, to succeed, to make money, to make a living for themselves. I mean, my parent, my grandpa, you know, was working with actually, you know, fought in the Vietnam War, working with the American side. And my dad said when he was at war, he would have to ride his bike and and go fix other people's bikes for money and and go sell this little gadget that he made and and so they did little things like that just to make money and you know while our my mom worked in the rice fields and so they knew they wanted a better life than just working day to day with this hard labor and they wanted a better life for us their children and living in a communist country there's not any opportunities to do that, to have a better life for your kids and for yourself. And so they knew coming to America was probably, was their only option. I mean, you hear stories about how many times people try to escape these communist regimes, um, getting killed over it just to escape that, just to have a better life for their kids. Right. So they wanted. So did they get that better life? Like, did they get the life that they thought they were going to get coming over here? If you was to ask them that, like, was it uh, the grand and fanfare that they thought they were going to get coming to America? They knew that they would have to work hard. But yeah, my dad knew that even though he had nothing, he could work and work hard and act and achieve his dreams of becoming successful, an entrepreneur, independent, working for himself and, you know, raising kids in this country and having them be successful as well. 
And so he knew, definitely knew there was opportunity here when he came. But yes, it was definitely hard work and probably, you know, harder than they could imagine. But um, my dad tells me all the time that he never regretted a moment of that decision. And the life he chose here would be way better than if they were to stay in Vietnam. Right, right. And so I'm I'm assuming, did you eventually get your citizenship when you came over here? Like, how did that process go for you? Yeah. So the good thing is my parents got their citizenship before I turned 18. So if you're still, if your parents get citizenship before you turn 18, all of their children get citizenship automatically. So it took them, they had a, you know, it took them from green card to becoming a U.S. citizen about 13 years. Hmm. So it's a long process. And, you know, and so, it's you know, not, not easy process either. yeah, it's not an easy process. And for people that don't speak English and to, to learn English, take those tests. I mean, I remember as a kid listening to my grandpa play these videotapes of practicing the questions they would get on their citizenship exam. Like how many, name the U.S. presidents in a row, how many senators are there, how many represent, I mean, just all, every single question, there was like over a hundred questions and he would just rehearse this every single day. And so it's not a hard, it's not an easy test at all. And it's uh, not an easy process. All right. Probably most Americans naturally born would fail that test. <laughs> I know I probably would be one of them. Yeah. So what was it like for you like growing up here in America as an Asian woman? Like what was kind of like childhood like for you yeah. going to school, that type of stuff? We were always the only Asian family everywhere we went because we didn't live around in an Asian community. We didn't live around Asian people. So we lived primarily in, you know, white community or a white and black community. So I went to school with white and black kids. We were probably the one of the only Asians in our schools. And so that's a whole different experience because one, as an elementary school kid, well, going into preschool, I didn't know any English. I was raised by my grandparents who didn't know any English. I didn't understand anything. I didn't understand what my teachers were trying to say. My dad had to teach me how to say, like, Can, I, I need to go to the bathroom, mm -hmm. basically. So that was, like, the only sentence I knew. I mean, I just remember, like, going to the bathroom on myself because I didn't know how to say that in mm -hmm. kindergarten. And so we just learned little phrases like that at home to go to school just to say, but we didn't understand anything. Eventually, you know, as you know, you meet more friends and especially being that young, you can learn two, two languages. And so we picked it up quickly. And, you know, so the language barrier at the beginning was a, a you know, a big issue, but we never knew race. Like when my parents never talked to us about you know, white people, black people, we're Asian. We, we, I never knew about race when I was that young, probably, you know, like first, second, third grade. I never knew that I was Asian, but you know, when I started being made fun of probably when I really understand so that I was different was third, fourth, fifth grade, I would start being made fun of for being Asian flat face, chinky eyes, you know, everything, everything about being Asian, my hair, my skin color, everything. So um, not being able to understand English or having an accent or my parents having an accent. Um, that's when I really understood that I was Asian or different mm -hmm. than um, the kids around me. How did that uh, make you feel at that age being taught yeah. those type of things when you never kind of experienced that your whole life and then just kind of 
wham, all of a sudden that kind of happens to you and you're kind of like, you're the only Asian there. I mean, I remember so many times as a kid not wanting to go to school. And looking back now, I mean, this is actually the first time I'm thinking about it is like, I never knew why I didn't want to go to school back then. Or I would make excuses like my stomach hurt or I, you know, I would cry when my dad would drop me off at school. And I never really thought about it. But I I mean, I think it's because I didn't want to get made fun of. And it wasn't an everyday thing, but I just knew like it. I was different then and I didn't want to, I know I didn't fit in. And, and so I definitely remember as a kid, not wanting to go to school or participate and, or, you know, talk to other kids, or I would always be sitting next to the teacher. Mm -hmm. So then I was like considered a teacher's pet or something. So there was a lot of instances like that, especially, you know, third, fourth grade, and then being shy back then too, you know, which we can get into about like Asians, you know, being shy and quiet and all that. But yeah. Mm-hmm. So what kind of happened for you as you progressed along in in life? Did those comments get more prevalent? Did they start kind of falling back? Or did you start um, kind of defending yourself and people wouldn't come at you with that type of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think that they definitely became more prevalent or I was noticing them more when I probably didn't pick up on it earlier. I mean, and I guess also suppressing it as a kid, like when you're in third and fourth grade, like I never responded to hate, like I never responded to people saying anything to me that was nasty or negative. When kids made fun of me, I never responded to that. So I always just kept it quiet. And so kind of moving forward, I I did the same, like I'd be walking down the street and some kid would yell out their car like ching chong or Mm -hmm. something so so we I got racist kind of things said to me often it was just I never did anything about it or said anything and and it was because we were taught going up to like not be confrontational I mean because we would I would watch my parents you know people would say things to them you know get out of this country or say that and my parents like they taught us you know we don't say anything bad you don't talk bad you don't we don't even address it or we just ignored it. Mm-hmm. Why, and, why is that? Why is that kind of been uh, preached? It seems like from what you kind of said earlier, yeah. the Asian community, maybe not to be confrontational or be kind of quiet and reserved. Right. No, I mean, I think deep down, it's a fear of getting kicked out of the country. Like my, I always had this fear and I don't know if it came from my parents or I don't know if it was ever said to me, but like if you ever did anything wrong, they could send you back to Vietnam. Or if you ever got in trouble, you we wouldn't be here anymore or they would send us back. And so I think growing up, our parents never wanted any confrontation to anybody. We were scared of the police and for different reasons than why someone else would be scared of the police. We were scared of the police because we had to obey the law because we don't want to be kicked out of the country. Hmm. And I don't know what, why that fear was instilled in me or in us, but it was a fear like we don't belong here in the United States. We could always be sent back. Right, right. Um, Even though we were here legally. So did y'all know anyone who had got sent back to their country that, oh, they could have told y'all a story? Like I remember when such and such said the wrong thing and now they're back in Vietnam, but there was just kind of that that fear that was just always there. Yeah, no, I don't remember them ever telling me stories about anybody that's been sent back. We just hear stories of how difficult it is to get here. So how difficult the journey is to get to the United States or how difficult it is to be here legally. 
and so and stay legally. So there's, you know, some people that come over on student visas or traveling visas. And then they stay here illegally, you know, after their visa expires. So those stories we hear about, but never any, sorry, never anyone who came here legally and stayed legally, have I heard anyone getting kicked back home? But, you know, it's, I don't know why that that's always been a fear. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's just from my family. So like, I can only speak kind of from our experience, but that was definitely a fear of why we had to kind of be quiet, obey the law, obey anyone in authority. So I was like, oh, growing up, I was always had, knew I had to obey authority, police, whether it be teachers, anyone that was like an authority figure wore a badge, we had to be scared of and like obeyed them, whatever they said, we had to agree with. As you've gotten older, has that mindset changed? You've kind of been able to def- formulate your own opinion on some of these things that you were kind of told as a child. And it's like, no, I can be a little more vocal now as an adult and not be so um, quiet and reserved as I was maybe as a child or like a teenager? That's hard to say because it's, I mean, that's a good question. It's hard to say what I would be like now because as a physician and a female physician, it's different too, because I'm kind of in my profession. So being a professional and having that type of authority or I guess this place in my life like I'm able to, hey, talk to other people in authority. And basically, you have like, I mean, being a physician gives you a certain amount of respect. Right. Like, and you're able to voice yourself with that kind of respect behind you, giving you more confidence. Yeah, I definitely have more confidence as a physician to talk to other people and talk to people with authority, you know, and, and be confident in that. And so with that aspect, things have changed, but am I still scared? Yes. Am I still scared of getting in trouble with, you know, yes. So that's kind of, that there's also that fear. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of two sided for me. And so I just can't imagine what like my parents are going through you know, because they don't have, you know, a title of being a physician or an attorney or anything like that. And so it's, I guess it's different. Right. Right. So do you feel like you've kind of always had a target on your back growing up? I wouldn't say I've always had a target on my back. I mean, I just, I would say that we were always treated differently. And so, and then with the fear behind it, we've always, I've just always felt like we had to be good citizens, be Uh good people. Because something may happen if you're not good. Yes. So what's it like being Asian in America right now? It's a lot of stuff that's been going on since COVID. A lot of like racial attacks that's been going on, shootings, abuse. Like what's it been like for you recently? I mean, honestly, I never, I guess it's fortunate is that I've never been scared for my life or I've never been fearful walking you know, by myself anywhere. Um, never scared anyone's going to attack me because I'm Asian. Like I've never had that fear. And so that's something new that's come up this past year is like, wow, okay, should I be scared to go somewhere by myself because I'm Asian? You know, most of the time it's like, okay, because I'm a woman, you know, I'm scared to be, you know, out in the at, alone at night walking, But now it's like, am I supposed to be scared that I'm Asian? So that's the thing that's kind of changed this past year that I don't think I've ever had. 
it's always been like verbal attacks towards Asians. And so I hear that a lot in our community, but I've not heard about physical attacks. And so that's when it becomes scary is because, you know, it's been Asians were quiet. We've been verbally abused, but then now it's kind of changed. And I don't know if it's changed, it's happening more or it's just being reported more now or because of social media or, you know, videos and all that. But you know, it's definitely changed to now I'm kind of fearful that it's going to turn to physical attacks against against me. And so that aspect is scary, scary right. for my parents to be out because my parents are out and about and, you know, my my every all of us are. And so that's kind of scary. Yeah. What's that? What's that fear like for you regarding your parents and your siblings right now? Are you checking on them more? Are they saying they're afraid to go out too? Yeah, I mean, definitely a fear in our community. For my parents, it's harder for them to say they're fearful because, you know, also in Asian communities, parents don't like to express any type of uh, weakness to their kids or any vulnerability to their kids. And so I don't think my parents would ever say that, oh, we're scared or, oh, we're worried or concerned for our lives. You know, my, my dad always tells us like, you know, he's strong and, you know, it'll be okay. We'll be fine. Nothing's going to happen. And so, so I think it's hard for them to express any fear if they had any. Right. Right. And you talked about kind of your fear earlier, as far as this is a different type of fear being like attacked because of being Asian, as opposed to the fear of being just a woman going out. So kind of, can you kind of, kind of expand upon that a little bit? Like, how does this fear is, how does it feel different with this type of fear? Yeah. I mean, you know, most women can relate to being afraid to walk alone at night or go to their car late at night and, you know, have your keys ready so you could get in the car before someone attacks you from behind or tries to get in the car with you. You know, that fear has always been with me, you know, since I was probably in high school, you know, my my parents would just tell us to be careful because we're girls. And so, so little things like that. So getting the car, making sure you have your keys ready so you can get in your car quick enough or making sure you're always watching your back. And like, I'm never on my phone when I'm walking by myself, you know, making sure you hold your purse tight. And so I never, I never really go out by myself now. And so that fear has kind of always been instilled in me. And so And then I think a lot of women with any race could relate to that. And so I've never really thought about how, what it would be like to be attacked because of my race, Uh you know, and I've always talked to, you know, we see children in our profession and I always talk to kids about, you know, I mean, you see children, I don't see children. (laughs) (laughs) You used to see children. So, you know, I always talk to them about, you know, do you have any bullies at school or, you know, how is that? And, you know, I talk to my African-American kids about, you know, what it's like for them and are they scared of anything? How, how do they approach police? And so I have those conversations, but I've never really thought about it for Asian kids or Mm -hmm. me being Asian because I haven't heard those stories. And so I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I will change anything that I do. I think I'll, you know, but that that thought is still in the back of my mind of would anybody do anything to me because I'm Asian. Right. And how do you think you would react if something was to happen to you? Like if somebody tried to attack you? 
Yeah. I mean, I guess this goes back to the point of has anything changed for me from, you know, you asked earlier, like if someone said something to me that was racist now, what would I do? Honest, the honest answer is I probably wouldn't do anything. Like if someone said something to me while walking down the street, people, I mean, I've had that last week, someone said something racist to me and I ignored it. So verbally, I think I would still ignore it. You know, if something physically happened to me, I think, I mean, obviously I'd be traumatized. It would be a very traumatic experience. And so, no, I don't think I would react well. I think I would definitely obviously call the police, report it and all of that. But I think it would be very traumatic. What happened last week? Oh, oh, some guy just yelled out the car and mm-hmm. said something like, you know, you hear about all the, these Asian fetishes and all this. Mm-hmm. And he said something about, you know, oh, I've never been with an Asian or something. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of also another part of it, you know, being sexualized for being Asian. Right. Like, How crazy is it, in your opinion, that despite all that's been going on recently, that people are still doing these type of things? I mean, it's crazy to me because you would think this world has changed so much and that United, the United States has become such a melting pot of cultures and a melting pot of all types of races and nationalities that it's just insane to me that there's still people out there that are racist and everyone in a few years, I don't want to say a few years, everyone in the future will look the same. I mean, they'll have the same skin color eventually. We're all going to melt together. And so I just think it's so crazy, like how many people of color are in the United States and that there are still racist people out there that are doing these violent attacks against minorities and people of color. So, and so the hard part for me is that I, I see it. It's going to be very hard for Asians first generation Asians to stand up for themselves because of the fear, you know, whatever fear they have of authority. But the second generation Asians and Asians now in our in millennials and Gen Z and all of that, I think they're stronger, their voices are louder. And I, you know, I think they're definitely the future. Right. How how are they stronger now? How are they making their voices more louder? Is it social media? Is it j- different Asian uh, groups that are being formed? I know they have a couple out here in Atlanta. So how are they yeah. making their voices more pronounced? I mean, definitely with social media, you feel more connected to Asian communities. You feel more connected to people in other states. And social media is a great way. And then Having people that you can relate to, so clubs and organizations are at universities now, you know, there's Vietnamese student associations. And so it definitely, they're just, I guess, not scared, you know, so our generation and the next generation, the future generations, they're just not scared like our parents were. And so I think, and they're protesting and marching and I knew a ton of Asians that went to Black Lives Matter marches and then they held their own, you know, anti-Asian, you know, march, uh, racism march. And so it was just now they're out there in the streets and trying to get heard. Right, right. Yeah. So so I asked you earlier, what's it like being Asian in America? Now I'm going to ask you, what's it like being Asian in Atlanta specifically? Yeah. Because I know like a couple of weeks ago, they had the shootings out here in Atlanta yeah. I know they had to kind of be scary for you as an individual. Yeah. So what's it like being Asian in Atlanta? And like, what was your initial reaction when you heard about the shooting? My initial reaction was, I can't believe there's another shooting. It was just more of like, okay, another, you know, mass shooting. It's just crazy that we 
haven't done anything about these gun laws yet. And then my, you know, second reaction was about, okay, well, this was targeted towards Asians and specifically Asian women. Um, And then when I heard about them coming out saying, you know, he had this sex addiction and then these Asian women, you know, he was, you know, that's why he did it. It just fueled my anger for everything that, you know, had been going on towards the Asian community and then towards Asian women about, you know, fantasizing about them. And and so that part made me really angry. And then it turned to more hurt about, wow, like my mom owned nail salons and was working late at night. And, you know, the fear with her being there at her own nail salon and, you know, she's gotten mugged there before, you know, and, um, you know, and so that was always a fear and then I was thinking about my mom and then the moms that were killed in this shooting. And I'm like, gosh, they have kids who are going to school and then they're just trying to make a living and succeed in America and live this dream that they had. And, and it's just sad, you know, that that happened. Right, right. I'm assuming you were eventually like you were probably scared when this happened. Just yeah. I mean, different when it's like somewhere else, but when it's right in your backyard. Yeah. There's a different type of fear. Oh, yeah. It hits it hits close to home because you the Asian community is tight, you know, in any in, in, in Atlanta. And so, you know, somebody that knows somebody that knows that family that it happened to. And so, you know, you hear about, you know, I have friends who have kids who went to school with those boys that, you know, their mom was killed. And so it's just scary. And then you're then that's kind of when when that happened, that's when my thought was like, wow, should I be scared now to go to work or to go to my car or to be taking walks with my dogs? And then, you know, I'm like, my really initial reaction was, thank God my mom doesn't own these nail salons anymore. Mm-hmm. And she's with my dad or she's at home. And so, yeah, definitely a fear. All right. So so your mom's got out the game. <laughs> she retired. Okay. okay. <laughs> so maybe I've kind of been blind to this before. But since all of this has come, in, come out, like, I didn't know about the fetishism going on with Asian women. Can you talk a little bit yeah. more about that and where, if, if anything, you know, like where maybe it originates from or what comes yeah. off? With it? I have no idea where it originates from. I just, I know about, you know, during the Vietnam War, I mean, for Vietnam specifically, during the Vietnam War, you'd hear about these American soldiers that went over there and, and they basically got with, Vietnamese women and either they impregnated them or they would go to these, you know, uh, probably, you know, prostitution houses or something, you know, brothels and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's kind of where, you know, the Vietnamese and American fetishes happened. Um, And then you hear about, you know, soldiers staying in Vietnam. So, you know, when we went to Vietnam to visit, you would see, you know, these white men around um, or you'd see mixed kids. And so you, and so that's kind of where that started. And then, you know, personal experiences, I have always heard about Asian fetishes, jungle fever, yellow fever. Oh, I've never been with an Asian girl before. Oh, I only date Asian girls or, you know, or you hear about, oh, you know, black guys always get with Asian girls or, you know, Asian girls only want white guys. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's always that. that. Kind of a wrap-up question. Why should people care what's going on with Asians? Like if someone's living in some kind of rural community, they don't have any Asian friends, 
or somebody who's involved with a lot of the Black Lives Matter stuff. They got a lot on their plate from something else. Like, why should we care what's going on in that community for someone it, it may not necessarily affect them? I mean, I guess from a person to person perspective or just being a good person, mm-hmm. I think you sh- we all have a responsibility to be good to each other, no matter what you look like, where you come from, just from that perspective is to just be a good person um, and to care about somebody that's been hurt or, or been, has wrongdoing against them. So from that perspective, you know, that's why I care. You know, other reasons is, like I said, kind of before, we're all a melting pot. And I just feel like there's so many mixed cultures now it, you know, you see so many multicultural relationships now. And, and so I just feel like everybody eventually is going to be mixed and, you know, have some percentage of Asian and black and white and everything. And so we're all going to be this one happy family eventually. And so I just feel like we should care about each other and want to learn more about other cultures. And we eat, everyone eats Asian food. And so where does it come from? How did it come to be? Why is it here in America? And so I don't know, just caring about other people's cultures and wanting to know more and expanding kind of your small world that you live in. Yeah, you say we're going to be one happy family. So (laughs) that means you're going to start singing uh, We Are Family. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So uh, last question. So what ways can individuals help the Asian community? Like how can we combat hate against Asians? Not for just like, temporary for like long term like we don't want this to just be like a concentrated effort obviously asking questions if you don't know i mean if you have the questions about you know if is this an okay thing to say or are you offended by this or or you know i just think it we're so scared to offend people like i like it when people ask me like you know, is it okay if I call you Asian or, you know, are you Chinese or are you Vietnamese or, you know, so asking, I think helps. And then standing up for Asian friends, Asian people that, you know, if you see somebody saying something inappropriate or racist, speaking up and just saying, hey, dude, like that's wrong. Um, And there's definitely a lot of groups like API has a big website. I don't know it on the top of my head, but um, basically people can report hate crimes there. What's API? AAPI. So Asian American Pacific Islanders. They're an organization that's actually like they're funding the Stop AAPI Hate and those rallies. And so the the website's called stopaapihate.org. And so that's a, a a great organization to look into. And so I think just being aware and looking out for the people around you, talking to your friends, asking questions, wanting to know more about cultures, where people came from, how they got here. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. You got to educate yourself and ask the right questions. If you don't know, find a good way to word the question. Yeah. Have an open, honest conversations and Sometimes when some of your friends or family members may say something that's offensive, like correcting them on that too. As yeah. well. I know a lot of people sometimes have these microaggressions. So we got to kind of read those out too. And a lot of times they don't know. And so 
there's a lot of ignorance around it. And so I think education is good. And so, yeah. And I will say this is the one thing I did learn about throughout all this is the model minority term that has been brought about. Basically, Asians are considered this model minority, that we are the superior minority because we're quiet and we're smart and we tend to be more successful and whatever the stereotype is. And so I actually learned that it was brought about so that Asians can be pinned against African-Americans in our country. And so I think that that's why there's sometimes that feeling, especially in the Asian communities, you know, Asians versus Black people, be, you know, those are the two big minority groups in America because Asians were considered this superior or model minority. Hmm. As we can see, it's not working. Me and you no. working together. You make more money than I do, probably. <laughs> I plead the fifth on that one. We are not going to get into my... Uh, salary on this podcast. Uh, Broke, five broke. We ain't got it. Yep. Just like Yeezy. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Dan, for sitting down and talking with me. I know you've listened to the podcast before, so you know what's coming next. I love it. I love your podcast. I think you're doing an awesome job. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking about this. It's important to me, and I'm glad uh, you're talking about it. And so it makes me proud to be your friend. (laughs) I wish I would shed a tear, but I'm a thug, so. Uh. Okay. <laughs> only they really knew you. Oh, man. Some of them knew. Some of them do. <laughs> but we're going to bring you back for Randy's Random Questions. Woo! Woo! Randy's Random Questions. All right. So we've got Dr. Dan. She's on the hot seat. Are you ready for Randy's random questions? No, you didn't prepare me for this. I didn't I know, know what's happening. The, that's the point. I'm already nervous. Oh, Lord. Uh, she's wiping her brow, y'all. She's on the hot seat. She's literally sweating right now. So, question number one. So I pull up to you at the light. I look over. You have your window raised up and you're singing your heart out. Like you've picked up your phone and you're just singing. Uh-huh. You're singing at a concert. What song are you singing? Or are you rapping? Right. Great question, actually. Can I have two answers? Okay. We'll give you Okay. If I'm rapping, it's it's Drake. What song? Oh, all of his songs are hits. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't have like not a hit. Um, I mean, ugh, gosh. You can't do this to me. I mean, his new stuff is good. What's next? Lemon pepper freestyle. Okay. You going to give us a couple of bars? No, don't do that to me. (laughs) (laughs) I have to be prepared. And then the next is Janae Aiko. Okay. Always playing Janae Aiko. Okay. Yeah. Why Janae? I don't know. Her vibes. Mm -hmm. Like, she has good energy. She's been hurt. And you feel it in her songs and you can just relate, you know? Yeah, them songs put you right to sleep. Man. (sighs) No, they don't. (laughs) But I I do like Janae. I do like Janae. She's one of my favorite artists. So, But like, oh, keep going. Okay, go. Go ahead. Go ahead. But like hardcore, like Drake's kind of soft, you know? But like if I was going like hardcore at the light, like if you really were looking at me and I was like going off at the light, I have been listening to YG lately. 
Oh, okay. I don't know why. <laughs> I, it just came up on my playlist, so then I just started playing it, you know? Yeah, I wasn't expecting why, YG. <laughs> what you listening to, Loco? Let me, yeah, yeah, that song, yeah, but that, that, let me just pull what was last played. I'm just pulling up my uh, Spotify. Okay. Isn't this a good song? Listen. Look at you. About to give me for copyright infringement over here playing songs that I haven't got clearances for. Okay. All right. I'm done. Okay. Okay, Thank done. you, DJ Dr. Din, for starting playing <laughs> tracks on the podcast. Be the song. Oh, I could be your DJ. Okay. So question number two, what is something that you wish you were good at, but you're not good at? Like if you wish that you were a better cook or you oh, wish God. that you could swim, a better dancer, what is something that you wish you were good at, but you're not as good as you wish you as, as well, the good, I'm a good cook, a good dancer, so I don't need to do any of those things. Mm-hmm. I'm just kidding. I wish I actually took my piano lessons as a kid seriously. Like, I wish I could play an instrument. Like, my parents put me in piano and violin, but I didn't really take it seriously. I can see you not taking it seriously. I can <laughs> see you in there just trying to make people laugh. I was just pretending the whole time, like that. I, so no, I was terrible. My dad put me in piano lessons for like ten years, and I never progressed. Man, he wasted a lot of money. I know. Okay, man. I hope he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> like I brought her all the way to America to figure out how to play the piano, and she didn't learn a damn thing on the piano. Man, but God. she did become a doctor, so. And let that slide. Points for that. All right. So, last question. Okay. What movie character? It can be cartoon or real life, or like not real life, but a person movie character. Yeah. Made you so angry at the end of a movie or end of a TV show, where you wanted to fight them? That if you saw them on the street, that you would run up on them and jack them up, like grab them by their shirt. Like, why did you do that to such and such? Like, what movie character got you so irate? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. Okay, can I look it up? <laughs> you can't look. <laughs> what are you going to look up? Movie character that made me mad on Google. Wow, that is what I looked up. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of any. Was there a character a that broke, broke another character's heart in the movie? Or yes. somebody that killed a character that you yeah. loved in the movie? Like, if you saw Thor out on the street, would you be mad that he ended up, well, right. with a spoiler alert, like he snapped the whole world? Well, I watch a lot of rom-coms, so I'm trying to think about what, like, made me mad that I hated watching, like, because I, I don't, that's a great question. Okay, you're going to have to edit all this out. No, we're going to leave all of this in while you no, sit there on the hot seat until you figure out this answer. <sighs> No, because it has to be good. Okay, so we're going to switch the question since you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. the first one that we're we're switching the question on. Oh, Oh, Lord. We're breaking ground here. Don't tell anyone. Oh, we're going to tell the whole world. Yes. So what is the weirdest thing you find attractive in a person? Like, romantically? Yeah, you can say romantically. (laughs) Oh, I like the way he eats his food. Uh, Oh, I think he has the most sexiest pinky toe or something like that. 
Like, what is something weird that you find attractive in a person? Okay, that's a good question. I have an answer. I don't know if it it is weird. How they drive. Hmm. Is that weird or is that normal? I don't know. That's weird. That's weird. You know when you got that, like, swag when you're driving? Mm -hmm. Or sometimes a lean back? Or the one arm? Or maybe, like... I don't like the arm over the other seat. That's weird. But like just the one hand. If y'all could see her now, she's doing all these maneuvers. She's swerving with one hand. She got the lean back. You know the people that drive like this, like Mm -hmm. so up close to the steering wheel, like that's not attractive. So if you're driving at 10 and 2, that's not attractive. No. If you're like, and you're sitting up close to the steering wheel. But if you have like a swag about you and you're listening to music and you're just chilling and then I look over and I'm like, oh, isn't that cute? You're like, oh, he got that swag and he listening to Janae Aiko. Yeah. I know. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. So, yeah, that was an unexpected answer right there. <laughs> I'm going to go work and practice and see how I'm driving and how I'm leaning. Okay, you should record yourself. I think you drive 10 and 2. Oh, no. I'm not. definitely leaning. I'm no, definitely. you're not leaning. I'm not. I'm, not <laughs> I'm from Texas. We swinging down the road, going across the lanes, all that type of stuff. But also, like, putting your arm out the window is not cool either. Like, oh, that's not cool. That's so not I hope you don't do that. No, I don't do that. Okay, good. Okay. No, I just lean back in the cut. Okay. Yeah. Drink my little protein shake. So we're gonna we're gonna let you off the hot seat now. You were really on the hot seat. You couldn't even find the answer to one. No, I know. I couldn't even Google it. I know. You can't Google something that should be in your head already, Dr. Dean. I'm not good at movie stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't watch a lot of movies. All right. So we'll work on that for the next time we chat it up. But okay. thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, some great tips me. and some great information. And I hope we kind of expanded people's thoughts on what's been going on in the Asian community. And I hope it improves, not just for, for y'all, but for everyone in general. Like every time I turn on the news, there's something going on, some kind of right. shooting or some kind of attack that's going on. Right. We was good while we was in quarantine, but now America's back to America, unfortunately. Yep. We need a new America. We are. We're going to have one. All right. I'll see you at church. Thanks for having me. Wow. I learned so much in that interview, especially what it takes to become a U.S. citizen. I didn't know what was all involved for immigrants to become U.S. citizens. So that was an educational opportunity for me to learn some things. I often take for granted that I am a U.S. citizen. Thanks, Dr. Din, for sitting down and being very candid about what it's been like for you in today's climate. We've got to do better as a people and a society as just treating people better overall, no matter what race, creed, sexual orientation, gender, no matter what, we have to do better as a people. 